Welcome to the CEC Report for the 18th of August 2017. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is Robert Barwick. Welcome, Robert. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, asset bubbles will evaporate. Where does Australia's real wealth lie? And what do Donald Trump and Jeremy Corbyn have in common? Their deadliest enemy. Now, I'll also say before we start the show that today is our 300th showing on community television. Which is quite an accomplishment. We feel it, I think. That's right, and we hope that community TV continues to run. Well, we've had, uh, we might have some good news yet. We can't really announce it now. It's, it's not confirmed, but it, the government may be changing its mind on scrapping community TV, so we have to see. Mm. So that'd be good. Yeah. So on our, for our first uh, topic, asset bubbles will evaporate. Where does Australia's real wealth lie? Now, on the 13th of August, a somewhat of an expert in financial bubbles, uh, a, the former Italian economy minister, Giulio Tremonti, he's written about 10 books on the subject, actually. Uh, he did an interview with Italy's major daily paper, Corriere della Sera, and this is what he said. The causes of the crisis are all still here. The excess liquidity that caused the crisis 10 years ago is today exponentially higher. Finance is undergoing a frightening genetic mutation. All the elements producing the famous bubbles are all there. Yeah, I mean, Tremonti, if people had been listening to him, people like him, you know, for the last eight years, we wouldn't be approaching another crisis. He's a supporter of things like Glass-Steagall. Yep. But calling the financial system genetically mutated is quite striking, right? This is the, the state of play. It's true, because there's nothing real about it. It's, it's, it's so disconnected from the real economy. Um, it's not natural. It's in an unnatural state. And there's the, the crash of it is inevitable. That's mm. the bottom line. And if you follow our material, either by subscribing to our Australian alert service or watching these shows regularly, you would probably have a sense, as we do, that it's hard to imagine any country in this coming new GFC that would be hit harder than Australia, mm. quite frankly, uh, because of the housing bubble, the extent of it that it didn't blow in the last crisis, uh, what the government's done to feed it, and also the, the exposure of the banks and the impact a, a blowing housing bubble will have on the banks. Now, there's an update following what we reported last week on the housing bubble. Last week on the show, Robert, you said that the BIS Oxford Economics Group had warned of a 31% collapse of residential construction. Um, now, a Queensland company yesterday, it was announced, uh, which is called Queensland One Homes, has just gone into liquidation and the article suggested there will be more of this type of thing, which of course and there will. And we're seeing what we're, and we're, we're there's, a, there's a number of these that have happened in the, in the recent period. And when you start seeing construction companies bite the dust like this, you know the signs are, mm. are there for something big to suddenly erupt. Yeah, and while the BIS Oxford report only suggested a perhaps 10 to 15% collapse of the real estate bubble of housing prices, Jonathan Tepper, who re runs the research group Variant Perception, he has just warned of a property crash of between 30 to 50%. He said the nation's banking system is unstable and that Australians are living in fantasy land regarding the impact of slowing construction on the economy. Lisa, Australians who watch this on YouTube, our episode on YouTube, 
Um, you should know that on four corners on the ABC on Monday night, they're going to be doing a feature on the property bubble. Jonathan Tepper will be interviewed on that. He's someone that monitors this situation very closely. He monitors lots of property bubble, not, not just property bubbles, asset bubbles in general around the world. Um, and it would be worth tuning in to see what he says about that. Yep. And then you had the former top US Fed from the US Federal Reserve, an official by the name of Nellie Liang, who was just in Sydney. Uh, and she warned of a reversal of international capital flows, particularly from countries like China, which has just decided to restrain its foreign investment going into other countries. And, uh, and Liang said that this can be a trigger for a real estate price collapse. And foreign investors account for a third of new build commencements, at least last year, that was the figure, according to the Master Builders Australia. Then you've also had two um, bank heads that have warned of a crisis. Ian Narev, the CEO of the Commonwealth Bank, has warned that if house prices collapse, that your quote-unquote wealth will plummet, but of course your debt will remain the same. And he warned people to be careful of how they um, consider their assets, given that that's the case. Now, Elisa, this is humorous, only to the extent that Ian Narev has presided over the bank that has done more to blow this bubble, blow it up, yeah. as in put air into it than probably any other financial institution in Australia. He's just got the sack, mm. but he's on notice. He'll, he'll be out before the end of the, this financial year. And lo and behold, as soon as he's got the sack, he's suddenly speaking yeah. honestly about the property market in Australia. And it's true because people think of these values as their wealth and it's not wealth. It can vaporise like that, but the debt is concrete. It's real and it'll smash them all. Yeah, it's not going to go away like the value of your house. Um, now, George Frazes, who's the head of consumer banking at Westpac, has said that if house prices drop, that asset class worth over $7 trillion uh, would, you know, obviously collapse and would, he said, destabilise the economy. That's, that's, he's obviously a master of understatement, yeah. but we'll take it as said. Yeah. Now, all of this is in a press release that we have just sent out today. So go to our website. You can forward that on to everybody that you know. We need to address this with Glass-Steagall, but we also need to look at building the real wealth of this country and having policies once Glass-Steagall's in, in place to stop the bank speculating, we then need to begin to direct credit into the real economy and that's what we want to talk about now briefly. Um, there was an article in the Australian Financial Review on the 14th of August, why the United States is Australia's indispensable economic partner and this article really gets to the, the nub of the problem actually because they're measuring the value of our economic partnership in terms of investment. Yeah. And one of the things that this article focuses on is the fact that Australia is dependent on, as they put it, importing foreign capital. And of course, who's the number one category dependent upon that? The banks. Uh, and they actually say it is not a stretch to say that Australia's mortgages are brought to them by US capital markets which is interesting because then you think about a crash in America, how that affects yeah. us or vice versa even. Yeah, because the bubble, when you have a bubble, it's got to constantly be fed. If it stops being even fed, even without a massive sell-off at first, that's enough to, to make it start to crash. The, the fact is the, um, the reason banks haven't been out, like the, the deposit base of Australia hasn't been enough to create this property bubble on its own is because 
the bubble is is unaffordable. It's disconnected from the affordability of Australians. Our deposit base represents what Australians can afford in their savings, right? So this bubble is disconnected from that and the, the banks have to tap these overseas capital markets to keep this bubble growing. If you looked at the economy though, in a healthy way, instead of thinking about the bubble as normal, if you looked at what Australia actually needed as an economy, you don't need foreign investment at all. No. We survived. The, the two times Australia was under most crisis was World War I and World War II. In both times, we didn't just survive. We flourished economically, absolutely flourished. Both times with a, a virtual embargo of foreign investment on us. We completely depended on the United Kingdom at the time. And both times they, could, they had to stop sending us money. They didn't have any money to send us, yeah. right? And we did super well. Why? Because we had the Commonwealth Bank. Right? And the Commonwealth Bank generated the credit that Australia needed for remarkable economic accomplishments. Mm. Now we'll, show, we'll put up the graph um, on this foreign investment because it's just interesting to note that the US is leading in terms of foreign investment and look where China is compared to the US. China, you know. Yeah, the, the China thing is completely overblown in, in, these, in, the, in the terms that people get afraid about. America's way over the top. The really interesting thing, Elisa, that yeah. jumped out to us when we saw this is look at the yellow part on the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And if you saw it, look at the legend, it, that yellow is financial derivatives. The UK's, a big chunk of its investment in Australia is in the form of financial derivatives. It's the biggest counterparty to Australia on financial derivatives, dwarfing even the United States. But the derivatives component of the UK's engagement with Australia is bigger than entire, China's entire mm -hmm. foreign investment yeah. in Australia, right? <laughs> and as we said in the, the Facebook post we put up, how on earth is Belgium the number three foreign investor? I, I still don't get that. <laughs> now, by way of contrast, the Australian economist James Lawrenson wrote a kind of a reply to this in the AFR of 16 August titled, Our Economic Destiny is China, Not America. And of course, he pointed out the obvious that if you add to just financial investment, if you actually add trade, then you see, of course, that China is the far more economic partner and he wrote, for example, that China bought eight times as much Australian goods in the past 12 months than the US did, and that's the case in services and so forth as well. Um, so national banking has to be number one on our priority list to cut free of this foreign investment. We can create our own credit. Secondly, we have to be looking for, to the future to Australian engagement in the Belt and Road Initiative of China. And in fact, you have had quite a bit of motion with various Australian states, the Northern Territory, for example, New South Wales. There's discussion about um, China looking at how they could help develop rail infrastructure in the western part of Sydney. Uh, you have in the Northern Territory, the Northern Land, Land Council in negotiation with the Yunapingu tribe, the Aboriginal group up there, about whether or not they can put land aside to be leased by Equatorial Launch Australia to launch and blast off rockets for and we, and, we, and we shouldn't think of this as, you know, um, outsiders like, in this case, China replacing the United States coming in and buying up what we've got. Um, most, of, most of China, what China would like to do is, is joint venture type stuff and where they do buy um, assets like agricultural assets, what they're trying to do is, is establish their own um, food security. Now, they don't make Australia's rules. We make the rules. We're the ones that say we're open to all this foreign investment, China. And China says, OK, well, we'll happily do that. China doesn't allow that kind of a foreign investment in China. If we applied China's rules here, China would respect that. So there's a way we can do it, though, that is let's treat everyone um, as equal 
rather than just say that because it's China, it's bad, and never look at what the United States and the United Kingdom does. And what James Lawrenson does really well, Elisa, is he just points out that most of the United Kingdom and the United States investment in Australia, that's like investment in things like um, shares and ownership of properties they've had for decades and decades and decades. And they act like absentee landlords. They just keep taking the profits out, mm. right, and put nothing back in. Our relationship with China is much more dynamic. Our trade imbalance with the United States is $27 billion. They, get tw they take $27 billion out of Australia more each year than they put back in. We have a trade surplus with China of $20 billion, right? China's, we, we earn $20 billion more from China than China earns from us, right? That's a big difference. And our, it's a much more dynamic relationship. The only thing that's dynamic about American-British relationship with Australia seems to be military stuff. Mm. And that's another difference. Now, we have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this to discuss the similarities between Trump and Corbyn. Welcome back to the CEC Report. What do Donald Trump and Jeremy Corbyn have in common? Their deadliest enemy. Now you may have noticed over the last week or two there's been non-stop coverage of you know attacks on Donald Trump over his how he's handled the North Korea crisis, and now you can't miss it on the news, the Charlottesville riots. Donald Trump's going to blow up the world. <laughs> Donald Trump protects the Ku Klux Klan. And what we want to look at is why the real reason for these attacks is being le levelled at him, and we're also going to take a look at similar attacks in the United Kingdom on the leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, and how these are coming from an identical source. So I just want to mention a couple of the really explicit attacks on Trump because these kind of get to the heart of the issue here and that is that there is a faction here that wants to take Trump out. Now firstly a 9th August article in The Guardian by journalist Jonathan Friedland was headlined Trump has taken us to the brink of nuclear war. Can he be stopped? And Friedland says in this article that both the US and North Korea are now led by unpredictable men. And he even says Trump's fire and fury comment could have come straight from Kim himself, meaning Kim Jong-un. Much of the British media, of course, is playing this up as Trump versus Kim Jong-un. And we'll put up a picture from the front of The Economist, which shows their heads in a mushroom cloud. And that's sort of a classic example of how this is being treated. That's the narrative. That's the general yeah, but you can see who's leading the charge. This is all coming out of, you know, the top British establishment media. Now, this Jonathan Friedland is also an author who goes under the pseudonym Sam Byrne. And he's just written a book called To Kill the President, the plot of which is about a president who threatens to respond to his manhood being challenged by the North Korean leader by launching nuclear weapons. Now, in the story, representatives of the Washington Deep State then decide that assassinate, assassinating the president is the safest option. Uh, and and so, so let's just be clear. He writes this book as under a pseudonym, a big fictional book based entirely on the Trump narrative, and then says in the Guardian of 9th of August, how can he be stopped? Well, you've just told us, Jonathan Friedland, mm -hmm. how you would like him to be stopped. Yeah, and uh, another Guardian journalist by the name of Nick Cohen wrote a book review about this book. He said, now that the world's most powerful man lives in the grey area between the sociopathic and the psychopathic, this fantasy, meaning the book, is not too far-fetched. 
and he makes very clear the book is about Trump and various other people in the administration. Um, so now both of these Guardian journalists have attacked Corbyn, haven't they, Robert? Viciously. And that's, the, that's what jumped out at me about both of them. Here are two guys that before they turned their eye onto Trump, what they were really known for in the latter period in the UK was their... their the Guardian is the, the leading left-wing newspaper in the UK, and Labor supporters think, well, why isn't it supporting the Labor leader? These two guys especially have led its coverage to absolutely excoriate Corbyn. They despise him. And the reason they despise him is for the same reason they despise Trump. Number one, Russia. This Nick Cohen, who, by the way, you know, total Blairite, completely fought hard for the Iraq war, no, no, no apology given since the, the total stuff up that he helped contribute to the world, that they represent the agenda, that, especially in foreign policy, that Corbyn is an enormous threat to, but so is Trump, if he can, poor guy can get his act together, right? The things that he campaigned for, Trump was the first US politician outside of Ron Paul to call Iraq war not an intelligence failure, but deliberate lies, right? Went after that. They despise him for that and they despise him for Russia and Nick Cohen's gone after Jeremy Corbyn for the same thing. Corbyn has never been as outlandish as Trump on saying oh, on Russia, but Corbyn's the guy who says, look, Russia's not really the issue here. Our foreign policy has contributed to this, right? Mm -hmm. They hate him for the same reason. It would upset their system where what happens is because of the Russia situation, Russia, by having America at loggerheads with Russia all the time, since the Cold War, since World War II, that has been the basis upon which Britain has been able to leverage its influence over the United States, right? Your enemy is Russia, you need us as your friend. Mm -hmm. And the British called it British Brains American Brawn. And any change to that, Isn't Russia great. stops being the enemy, that model falls apart. Exactly. Now, another Guardian journalist, and this time a slightly better one, Owen Jones, his name is, wrote an article on the 9th of August where he pointed to the kind of level of threat against Jeremy Corbyn. And this was headlined, Prime Minister Corbyn would face his own very British coup. So he says, if Corbyn is ever elected Prime Minister, they will remove him one way or the another. And he compares him to various other politicians like Harold Wilson in the 70s, who resigned because there was a coup being prepared against him. Uh, he was someone who was trying to fight for the industry to be revived, you know, for finance to be the handmaiden of industry. Yeah, suppressing the city of London a bit. Uh, Wilson was a contemporary, Elisa of Gough Whitlam, right? And that what they had in common in terms of good policy, they had actually good policies in common, like Whitlam was, was buy back the farm, take back control of our resources from Rio Tinto, etc. They had that in common and they were both toppled, mm -hmm. interestingly, around the same time in the same way, like involving the same people, the Queen with Whitlam, um, Lord Mountbatten with Harold Wilson. Yeah, um, but what he points out, which is interesting about Corbyn, though, which is different from any of these other Labor leaders that he looked at or other uh, politicians from the past, prime ministers, he said, Labor's leaders believe that political and social change cannot simply happen in Parliament. People must be mobilised in their communities and workplaces to transform the social order. That, frankly, terrifies elite circles. Yes. And you think of this campaign slogan, for the many, not the few. So that's the real threat. Now, we've got to stop for a quick break, but we'll keep talking right after this. Welcome back to the CEC Report, where we're discussing what Donald Trump and Jeremy Corbyn have in common. Now, the latest series of attacks on Trump, just coming back to that, with uh, North Korea and Charlottesville, started 
right after a memo came out written by a group called Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. And the reason they had to launch a whole new narrative to attack Trump, or a series of them, was because this VIPs memo revealed that the whole Russiagate story, which had been the leading force of their attacks, was a fraud, fraud because they actually showed that there was no Russian hack, there couldn't have been, and you can go back to the show on the 4th of August to see the details the of that. The gist of it was the DNC computer, Democratic National Party computer, um, was hacked, supposedly hacked, but the information taken off it was taken off so fast it couldn't have been done over the internet, it had to be done on a thumb drive. So it was an right. inside job. And that's all measurable on the data. And even though the mainstream media are still blacking that out, The Nation, which is a left-wing publication and very prominent, has covered it extensively. They're coming under attack for that. The Washington Post even put out a tweet saying, well, you were scooped by LaRouche Pack, and we'll put that up on the screen. So we helped get that out there, our affiliates. Our associates, yeah. uh, Bloomberg Press coverage has covered it and The Canary in the UK, and it's been blogged and tweeted everywhere actually it's getting around a lot our friend nick cohen that we talked about before the break viciously attacked the canary in the uk for covering this story mm -hmm. anything that undermines their russia conspiracy mm -hmm. they hate yeah um, now the north korea story you know didn't last either in terms of attacking trump i mean he was responding when he made the fire and fury comment how he was going to respond to north korea to a DIA report that had been leaked to the Washington Post, which was dubious, um, which had suggested that North Korea could miniaturise a warhead to be delivered by an ICBM, and it was already dubious whether they have the capacity for intercontinental ballistic missile launches. Yeah, so we wouldn't say what Trump said, but Trump is Trump. That's his personality. He's just been, He'd just been told that day, they've got the bomb now, they've got the ICBM, they've got the nuclear warhead, what are you going to do? Mm. And Trump and said, well, they're going to get fire and fury if um, that's what happens. And this was very rapidly, the, the leak, the DIA leak, was refuted by a US rocket scientist, Ted Postel, who's an expert in weapons, showing... Um, that basically um, th there's no evidence to show this could actually reach America because they used much reduced weight of payloads on their weapons when they did their tests. Test, yeah. So you can look that up, you can read more about it in our alert service. Nuclear warheads are pretty heavy. Call in for a copy of that. Um, now Trump is also dealing with a neoconservative apparatus and there's been efforts which we've exposed in the last two Washington insiders in our alert service and we name the names. These are former Dick Cheney friends and operatives. Uh, they're people from the Bush Cheney networks and the humanitarian interventionists on the left all coming together in an unholy marriage to try to push and steer the Trump administration uh, in this direction. Yeah, they, they, they're trying to keep regime change as an agenda at all costs, which is one of the things Trump said, no, I'm getting rid of that. Mm. Yeah, this is a, He can't get rid of them all, unfortunately, all these people, and so they still have influence. So fortunately, though, wiser heads prevailed um, with Tillerson and the State Department. Um, basically, the top US officials stated that despite what Trump had said and various tweets, etc., that no military plans had changed, there was no military action being prepared, and the situation has since de-escalated. Hence, Charlottesville comes up. And what you have is, a, what you're seeing from Charlottesville is just what we call gang counter gang. They, they set up this situation where you have the... You have normal people on the right that don't like the idea of statues being brought down. And then you have the Ku Klux Klan, the neo-Nazis, go and join with them. And you have normal people on the left that are anti-racism. And then you have these anti-far thugs with masks and baseball bats. They go and, and all Trump was saying, look, he saw those anti-far thugs and they were as bad as the neo-Nazis on the right. Yeah. 
And but so he gets sort of sucked into that. The bottom line is though, it's it's if people, all those ordinary people, they actually have a lot in common. And these operations are designed to split them up so they're fighting each other over these non-issues. And that's mm. what Trump's dealing with And we now. have to focus and look at the real enemy. But that's all we've got time for today. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Robert. And join us again next week. The Citizens Electoral Council will be present at the Royal Adelaide Show from the 1st to the 10th of September. Come and see us at the Jubilee Pavilion, site G54.